Hey, hey, welcome everyone to the Metro Music Makers podcast. This is Allison Gerald, and I am here with co-host Mark Grundoffer. Hello, Mark. Hey, what's up? Hey, we are continuing our series about professional musicians and all the different things we do uh, to make our worlds happen. And we love doing it. I mean, right? Yeah, yeah, that right. And you hear a yes from our guest today, Ronnie Chris, who is country Americana songwriter and artist based in Nashville, Tennessee. Ronnie, welcome yeah. to the show. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, we are really excited to talk to you uh, coming from a different market. You sit right next to us here in Atlanta. Um, but we know it's a whole different ball game up there in Nashville. At least that's what the rumors are here in Atlanta. Um, so we want to learn a little more about that from someone who is in the scene up there. But first, I really want to dive into um, your background because we've been sure. really interested in learning, like, you know, how did you even get into music? What motivated you to inspire it? So just take us back to your first sure. memory of, of music. Well, you know, my I have a pretty eclectic musical history story, I guess. Um, so I was born in Arkansas, but raised in Chicago. So I'm very weird in that way. Um, <laughs> and uh, I started playing guitar when I was 17, I think, something like that. So pretty late. Um, but I always listen to music. So, you know, as early, I remember the first, uh, and I told when I was on another podcast at one point, I told a little bit of the story, but it's, it's important to my sort of background. When I was real young, I remember the first music I ever bought. I was in a Walmart in Arkansas. It was a summertime because I used to spend summers with my dad in Arkansas. And I walked in and back then, you know, the big thing was the music section had all the tapes because it was all cassettes because I'm, I'm old. <laughs> and, uh, and they would have, remember, if you remember, it, well, and those of you who are super young, you won't know this, but like back then you could buy actual, you know, the full albums on tape, but they would sell the singles. Yes. Yeah. So it would be a tape. And on one side is one, the single song that you really wanted. And on the back was the B side, mm -hmm. but it was a cassette tape. And, but you could afford those as a kid. Like, you know, you, you could scrounge $2 out of your, your mom or your stepmom or whoever. Whereas if you bought the full album, it was like eight, maybe, or seven something like that. And they would, weren't necessarily going to spend that on you. So I remember I bought uh, what it takes by Aerosmith. Yes. <laughs> and I love that song. I just love that song. So I always like loved music. Um, and as I got older, that was probably when I was seven. And then I had a stepsister who was all into hair metal. So she's had like the boys and posters and all that stuff. She was older than me all over the walls. And she would listen to that stuff. Um, and then as I got older, middle school, I really got into rap and some of that stuff. The big thing that kind of came out that sort of shifted my world was uh, like a lot of people my age was Nirvana. So then okay, wow. I shift, shifted into that a little bit. And I always liked Aerosmith, though, so I used to listen to a lot of that stuff. And then, I don't know, at some point I saw some people playing acoustic guitar. I started seeing more and more people playing it, and I kept thinking to myself, I'm like, I should be able to do that. Like I can do that. And so I went on a limb and asked for that for Christmas one year and I got this guitar and 
immediately were started you in high school at this point yeah this would have been my senior year in high school now who who did you see that was playing were these uh like friends at school or so i would see these young kids playing at random parties and stuff and mm -hmm. and like back then like they would all <laughs> anybody my age from chicago would laugh at this but like if you would go to these parties right and if there was a kid who broke out a guitar he'd play breakfast at tiffany's that song <laughs> You know by, what song I'm talking by, about? By, by, uh... You mean Moon Rit? Oh! No. Yeah, no. Yeah. Like what the, is like, that group? Like, like the 90s. Breakfast at Tiffany. Yes! Yeah. That I think oh my I God. remember. I'm totally, totally going to link that song in the show. Uh, it's it's, it's <laughs> Blue something. Um, yes. Yeah, I can't remember the band. Like, oh, but, my gosh. That so song, that was like the... That was yeah, that the song popular... owned the radio in the early nineties. That song. Was well, and it was it was the popular song because girls liked it. So guys who played and you could play it on acoustic guitar. You can't play, you can't like impress somebody really well with a super complicated guitar uh, song on guitar at that age at a party, right? But you could pull that song out and start singing. The girls would sing along. You know, the other one you could throw out there is if you knew like Closer to Fine or something by the Indigo Girls, like. It was always uh, female driven. What got them excited? <laughs> you know. So and wait a minute, wait a minute. So you get this acoustic guitar and like right off the bat, are you learning Breakfast at Tiffany's? No, 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 no. I didn't. Oh, okay. like, I, that wasn't my, no. The, so, so, okay. So I see these people playing these guitars and I'm like, well, I, I, I sh I've got to be able to play those guitars. And I sure as heck am not going to play that. Song. That's like my thought in it. And I had the artist that I liked. At that time, I was really into Dave Matthews, so I wanted to learn what he was doing. Oh, that's uh, not that's not difficult. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I didn't know that till I got the book. <laughs> Anyone listening that's not familiar, Dave Matthews basically made up chords that no one else can play. <laughs> Very, is he, is he that right, Mark? I mean, they're a little. I mean, they're real chords. They're like you're giving really him too much credit. Yeah, <laughs> they're they're. They're, they're For very someone who doesn't know how so to that's play. That's my hot take sorry. on Dave sorry. Matthews, man. <laughs> well, D Dave Matthews is playing sophisticated jazz chords, not playing jazz, basically. So, like, they're these triad chords um, or or more than that. But they're a lot of, you know, if you met, like, a really good jazz player, they would use some of those chords. But they're using them in a different way, whereas Dave's using them for pop music. Mm -hmm. um, and, but they're, yeah, they, they really stretch your fingers. There's like really complicated thing, and then he and he has a lot of hammer-on things and these sort of individual string stuff. So yes, I buy I buy the Dave Matthews book after I get this guitar. I'm like I'm gonna learn these, and then I'm like feel like I'm completely defeated. So yeah, just, these are complicated chords, and um, so I, that was definitely a little disheartening or uh, you know sort of intimidating is the best word. Mm -hmm. um, but I also and then I also like James Taylor. That was another artist I really wanted to learn how to play. Those were a little bit easier to understand, but they were still kind of complicated because he's a pretty great finger picker. He's a great player, yeah. Yeah, so I the, obviously the two artists I wanted to learn right out of the gate were some of the hardest to play guitar on, which was like, go figure. Um, so, But the funny thing is, is I think this is a real thing. So I trying to learn those songs, I realized, wow, I really can't play these. I don't know how to do this but you would learn some of the chords while you're trying to figure out how to play that. And, and then what it made me do is like, well, I don't know how to play this. These are the only books I have that teach me how to play guitar. So then I would start writing my own songs. Mm. 
so it actually kind of pushed now i think i was always natural to try to be creative that way because i'm a creative person so like there was no doubt i was going to try to write my own song but it actually sort of gave me you know it kind of pushed me to do that because i was trying to kill time between trying to learn how to play these songs so i would then make up my own thing you hit you hit a wall with your playing and instead of stopping there you just went another direction and yeah wrote, wrote some songs I with love some that. you know with some cool chords that you know and yeah it's kind of it probably it probably gave you some really neat uh tunes because um sometimes sometimes as someone who knows you know like excessive amounts of music theory i sometimes feel restrained like in, in this little box and i have to work harder to play stuff that you know doesn't make sense on paper and and you know, mm -hmm. I hear some of my students who are very young putting little riffs together, and I'm like, "Wait, how did you write them?" Like, I don't know, I just played it, and I'm like, uh, "Yeah, okay, I got you. Yeah, that, that makes works. sense." <laughs> right? Like, do you know what chords you're playing? No, I just play it. I'm like, okay, I just like great. the way it sounds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But that's absolutely part of the process of creating. Is sometimes you just got to um, like the way it sounds. And, yeah. And, and so, it's do okay. you remember? Do you remember those first tunes? Like, what were you writing lyrics to, or were they? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's possible there's a notebook somewhere that has the lyrics in it. Um, maybe some chords. Uh, do I know how to play those anymore? I mean, if you're talking about that far back, no. I mean, I moved on so quickly to new songs because I write a lot, or I have. For, for the longest time written a lot this year has mm -hmm. been a little less so because i've been working so hard on getting this record out but um so yeah i mean the first record i ever made i i would have to sit with that record and relearn those songs because mm -hmm. i don't play those ever and it's like fortunately i have a, i have i have evidence of those songs so i can go back and mm -hmm. pick them up but like you know that early stuff i, I wasn't recording them right so i don't i don't know what some of those are um yeah, and they were and they were definitely green we're not talking yeah. like these were these were not masterpieces in any way shape or form these were me sort of learning how to mow the lawn you know right <laughs> cutting your teeth on your yeah. high school woes um so i, I definitely want to talk about you gig a lot which we're going to get to and you record okay. a lot and you collaborate a lot but i want to get from high school to nashville so okay so Tell I'll do, us I can, what happened. So I, I went to University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, and like any just normal college kid, met people, friends. I met this, uh, I met this one guy who's actually somewhat famous nowadays. Uh, his name is Jonathan Jonathan Sadowski. He's on, uh, he was on the TV show Young and Hungry, and um, Jonathan plays piano. Or he, I mean, I'm sure he still does, but he definitely did back then. That was what he did. And me and him met randomly right before freshman year. Mm -hmm. We would go in these little, little like music rooms where there was a piano, and I'd bring my guitar, and we'd like try to write songs and be silly and just, you know, get to know each other and play music. And so we loved playing music together. And a couple of years into college, we decided to maybe try to find some more musicians and create a band. Mm -hmm. And so we ended up running across. Uh, eventually, my really good friend now, uh, Andrew Madden, and uh, a gentleman by the name of Mike Hagison, and uh, the, our drummer was Jeremy Banoff. We met all these guys. All these are different college guys at Champaign, and we started like getting together and taking some of my songs that I had written and some songs I wrote with John and sort of piecing them together like a band. Uh -huh. And because you're young, you know, speaking back to Mark, you're, you're, you don't know what you're doing, so you kind of just do, right? 
So one summer before school, we came back for school. We all came back two weeks early and we just knocked on the door of this recording studio in Champaign-Urbana, a guy by the name of Mark Rubel, who is now actually in Nashville. But he had this recording studio and we knocked on, we're like, hey, we're a band here. We have these, we have like 10 songs. We want to make a record. He's like, oh, okay. Well, he gave us a tour of the studio. I was like, I can't remember the exact price. I think it was like three grand. He's like, it's 3000 if you want to do it. And we all looked at it just like, yes. So we just like put it on the credit card. Oh my there you God. Go. There you go. I was going to ask you, how did you guys scrounge together 3K? Uh, wow. Yeah. Hey man, you got you to invest in yourself. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it took me like 10 years to pay that thing off. But anyway, um, oh, oh, so it was a credit card in your name? Oh yeah, I got. I was my credit card. Um, oh I'm pretty gosh. sure that's what it was. It was either that or like, I know there was some, it was either that, I think it was that, it was that and the CDs that we had ordered, but anyway, um, <laughs> and, but then, but it was the most amazing life-changing experience I've ever had because we went in for a week, like, like any band you've ever heard of. Oh. We went into this studio every single day and we spent our day making these 10 songs and we'd be there 12, 13, 14 hours. And we made this incredible record by a bunch of young green people that like you listen to it now and you, you, you know, as a, especially as long as I've been doing this, you like flaws of, of it, but you also hear like this magic in it. You're like, wow, like that happened. And, and there's a lot of cool stuff in it, you know? Um, and it just, I got bit by the bug. I was just like, I have to write songs. I have to record them. I have to perform. Like this is something I can't I can't get out of my system, and we we tried to take have that take off, but you know everybody once college some of the guys were more interested in starting their careers they weren't really interested in being I think full time band and that's okay, um, well and John he he was also trying to do get into acting so once we left college he went straight to L A to try to do that which he was he's been very successful at doing, so we went on and. and we went to Chicago. Uh, we kind of reformed the band with a few different players. We played for a while and I was spinning my wheels in Chicago. It just didn't seem like anything was happening. Mm-hmm. And part of it, I think, is Chicago is a really weird scene. Uh, back then in particular, if you could be in a hard rock band, you could be a blues band or jazz, you know, all of those, you could do things up there. Or you could be a cover band mm-hmm. or kind of this college rock cover band. But like to be an original band that like wasn't doing like kind of harder rock it didn't seem like there was a real lane up there yeah so was this like was this the 90s no this would have been when i was playing in chicago you're talking 2002 through five okay three 2003 i just gave away my age um that's okay i just gave away (laughs) were you were you studying music in college no no i was studying visual art which we're looking at your artwork behind yeah, you right now. So, that's one of them. Yeah, that's really. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Like, why why did you go into visual art? Because I I don't my 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 first talent passion talent was I've always been an artist since I was little. I was always drawing and painting and doing stuff like that. And so I went to U of I to be a graphic designer. Mm-hmm. That like there was a weird system there, which I still like still bothers me the way they did that there. And so I ended up not being able to get into that graphic design program. And because I was already established there with friends and stuff, Mm -hmm. 
I should have probably transferred out to another place where I could do graphic design, but I ended up staying at the school. And then I just, I went into art education and uh, painting. Mm-hmm. And then I was doing music. Cool. Well, is, in is a way, the... it probably was meant to be because yeah, it was I mean, how the I music don't... would have, you wouldn't have stayed and met all those guys. I wouldn't have been in that band probably. Yeah. If I went into graphic design, I'd just be this Ronnie Chris graphic designer guy, probably. <laughs> right. Is that is that a picture over your right shoulder there? Is that a painting or is that? Yeah, it's a painting. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's cool. Because I was going to say it looks like a photo. Yeah, you know, there's elements of photorealism that I'll do. Um, I get, uh, you know, I can do, I do a lot of commission. Well, I used to do more commission. I've been so busy with music. Mm-hmm. But um, I'll do commission for people and a lot of times what they like is the sort of photo realistic elements of portraits. Um, I've done people that, you know, people really like those kind of portraits. I even did this amazing, I mean, I still think it's, it's maybe my most proud piece. It sounds crazy, but I did this amazing tribute portrait of this bulldog that my buddy's bulldog, it was like his life, his love, like, and it died. So he gave me, he sent me a few pictures and we did this one and it just, I mean, the guy cried when he got it. He couldn't believe it. It looks, I mean, it's, it's basically is his dog just chilling on the wall. <laughs> like, that's cool. Yeah. So, that's really cool. but that's a, that, you know, that's one thing I do. Um, but music, the funny thing is, is I can do that and, and I can have joy in that. But with art, visual art, it, it seems to run its course with me um, at some point. It, and then I, I'm not always as interested in it mm-hmm. and I'm never not interested in music. Like it's crazy. Um, I could just write songs all the time if I could, you know, and perform and, uh, I love doing that. And I love recording. I love working with amazing musicians that are better than me. And then less pulling those ideas together and mm-hmm. So can okay. we talk about your songwriting? Sorry, Mark. Yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah. But like, do you like do you literally carry a notebook around with you? Like, you know, we know you've got ideas going. Can you just tell us your process? Because everyone's is different. Well, you know, I think at a different time I would have probably carried a notebook. Uh, nowadays, the phone is all I really need. So um, anytime I get us an idea, if I really want to keep the idea, even if I don't have a a melody or anything i could just speak it into the voice memo Mm -hmm. but i definitely like if i get a melody in my head i'll put it in a voice memo so that i can get to the house later and try to do something with the guitar and anytime i'm at home where i have my instruments i'm dropping stuff in the voice memo all the time because i've learned that like my my short-term memory just just does not work like like in that sense like i can it can be the coolest thing in the world and if i don't get it down immediately i'll lose Mm -hmm. The, the voice memo has revolutionized writing. Totally. Like, it's just been great. But I've got a question because I always ask, I, you know, I, I have this discussion with my students and I've talked to other writers and stuff. Um, I do not, I purposely do not label my voice memos. Like, I have voice memo 145, you know, voice memo 300. What? Right? I don't, I don't label them because <sighs> I, I, look at the timestamp and I can kind of remember if it's a real recent one, but I kind of want them to disappear in my phone so I can go back to them a year later and, and cycle through all my voice memos and find these cool riffs. And Mark, things. seriously, yeah. that is bananas. That's what I do. Yeah. That's cool. 
I, and I, I, and I, I record I them on my on my iPad and my iPhone, so I have two banks of completely oh, unmarked my voice memos. <laughs> There's hundreds yeah, of I don't thousands know if the, of them. Yeah. So, I so couldn't do that. I yeah. would say not even just about organizing, but the, the cool thing about my voice memo is it has random names, and, and I don't like Usually what happens, so so this speaks more to the, uh, my process, right? So if I have my guitar and I'm playing a lick so, or a chord progression and I start singing, and, I, and this is a lot of how I come up with things, is I'll just start singing nonsense in mel melodic tones, right? And then it usually draws out these really cool melodies. And, and it also will draw out a phrasing that's cool, even though the lyric is nonsense. But in the nonsense, there's cool words that you say. There's like, you might even say a really cool phrase, right? And usually what happens when I, right before I finish that melody after I've laid it down, if there's some kind of phrase in that that I like the way that it sounds, I'll name the memo that. So when I look at my voice memos, I have all these really interesting one words, two words, three word titles that are, that are not like real song titles, but they are, they just make me want to, well, what's that? It makes me want to listen to it. Yeah. And it draws me back into the voice memos. And then, and, and now if something I know is like killer, it doesn't stay just a voice memo for very long. It becomes a song pretty quick because yeah. I, I will immediately try to finish well, that's it. What I, yeah, that was, a, I was the same thing. Like if I, re I record a piece, if I'm like, oh, I got to record this like for real. Sometimes the voice memo is just me being upstairs and not downstairs in the studio, you know, and it's, it's yeah. like, let me just lay it down real quick. But I also just, you know, because we, we don't really, um, we haven't really talked about it, you and I, um, I don't write lyrics. I do instrumental music. So there's no okay. funny phrases anyway. So I got tired. Yeah. Of, I got tired of writing D major riff and C, you know, it's just so like, that makes actually you know, honestly, that makes complete sense. You know, yeah, the only thing it, I ever write in is if I have a weird tuning on my guitar, because I don't feel like I've had to sit down and like refigure out my own song. And it's like, it's, a, it's annoying. So. So you mean they're not like Mark's Noodle no. and D? No, because I got tired of doing Mark's that. Noodle number seventy-eight. <laughs> the best, the best ones though, and 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 Ronnie, you'll you'll agree with this too. Is like the best ones are those ones where you you do just have a melody, and even me, just a melody on the guitar, and I sit there and sing it in the car. It's like, you know, so it's like, yeah, okay, melody riff, da 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 da. da. You know, it's just me singing. You know, as as you know lazily as possible and those are the best i do ones. that too mm -hmm. i do yeah. that a lot yeah. but like ronnie a lot of times it can be lyrics with it so ronnie i'm curious because um i do lyrics as well and a lot of times the lyric and the tune come at the same time i mean that's kind of what you just described and you might go back and tweak the lyrics um, oh yeah, the, there is not one lane that I drive down to get to a particular song. Like, um, you know, sometimes it's pick up the acoustic guitar, play a little pick and lick, and then that makes me think of some kind of vocal melody with some lyric. And sometimes that lyric ends up being the right on lyric. Like that's absolutely what I want to write that song around. And sometimes it's not, I'm just writing it around that. But I also, you know, I, the, I could be in the car, like you just said, and I come up with something without any touch of guitar. And then I put that in the phone and come home and then I marry the two. Um, you know, and then sometimes, uh, you know, there's a sometimes I don't do this as much. This is the one I do the least amount of times. But if I don't have a guitar with me where I'm just staring at a computer screen with a Word document open, I can start just writing, like trying to write 
a story or like piece together some kind of idea in, in more of a lyric form than like a literature form. And then I can eventually maybe use that. Um, when I first got to Nashville, they encouraged you to co-write a lot. That's how this you sort of. This is what I've heard. I want to hear all the Nashville secrets. <laughs> Well, I learned pretty, I was told pretty quickly when I got into town, it's like, if you want to, if you want to do this, you've got to get out to all the open mic nights and the um, writer's nights that they have in Nashville. And you've got to basically get booked for those or allowed to play for those. And you need to play those. And then you, you find people that are playing those nights that you think are good. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. I was just going to ask though, like, so you get there and people are telling you this, but who are these people? Like, how did you initially kind of get hooked into where you're just meeting those that's a great question who are um, giving you these tips i don't remember who told me that um there might have been somebody in chicago who said something about it and it's also or they might have said you, you need to find out where people are playing and then maybe i went to watch mm-hmm. you know because I, I i you know i i don't know anybody and they, you know, and maybe I went to watch and just sort of see what what this whole world is like. And that's where I heard about it, because maybe you're talking to another writer and they're like, oh, yeah, this is what people do and blah, blah, blah. I can't tell you who told me that. It's been 15 years. It's like, but some you start to, you know, you network, you start to mingle and meet people. And then you start to play these writers nights and then you see these other artists that you think have something good about them, something interesting. They, they spark your interest of, oh, that person might be a cool person to write with because I like their angle at things. I like the way they work. Or, yeah, that person's just really good and they can make me better probably. Mm-hmm. And so you, you you meet folks and if they like what you're doing, they use you pretty, you know, when you're going to those, everybody at those are at that level, basically. They're new to town. They're trying to network. So everybody's kind of all eager to, meet new people and write with new people anyway, because it just becomes this thing. The people who have been there, like like now, I've been here 15 years, like there's many of those I just don't play anymore because I, you know, every once in a while I'll go back and play just, it partially is sort of like, it's part of my past to sort of re-engage with that. But like, I need to be writing with a lot of people in a different place mm-hmm. and, so, and they're not at those places. So, so, I mean, it's, it's like life is right. There's a graduate progression in mm-hmm. Nashville and you just... there's a progression. Yeah. In Nashville in life, any kind of business, like, you know, you're, you know, the, the, the CEOs aren't hanging out like all the time with the new hires, right. Mm-hmm. They have events for that when <laughs> they're off to, and it's not, it's not, about, it's not about elitism. It's just, you have to, you're working alongside people who are working at the same level that you're working at, right? And right. so that's kind of a thing that happens, and that happens in anything. And it happens in Nashville, for sure. And so can you take us to your first co-writing experience? Like, what did that look like? I want to hear specifics. Was it like you actually got together in a place? Yeah. I mean, this is... This I want to know what, what that was like. So this would have been 2008, probably 2007. No, 2007. It would have been 2007 for sure. Um, might have even been late 2006. So yeah, you definitely got into a place because there was no Zoom in or nothing like this. Um, and so you would basically, hey, you get, you want to write? Yeah, let's write. We you get numbers, you cross, you exchange numbers, and you set up a time, a date, and someone's like, oh, you know, just can you come at my place? Ah, sure, no problem. And so then. I'm pretty sure my first co-write, I went to somebody else's place. Um, 
you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I can't tell you the first one. I don't remember that anymore, but they all pretty much look like this. You show up, you're like, Oh, cool. Nice place. You know, this is awesome. And you probably spend the first few minutes, 10 minutes or whatever, talking about the music you like and what you're into. Maybe you show each other a song that you're working on and you kind of, you sort of get the sense of where they are at. And you got any ideas? You know, yeah, I got a few and you might have some titles or something written down and then vice versa. And then you kind of together, you look at what's in front of you and you make a decision like, well, do we want to chase this rabbit? You know, like this is kind of cool. Maybe we should work on this or you know the person you're sitting with might just play the most the coolest guitar like you've ever heard like we've got to write that like whatever that is let's build on that Mm -hmm. and you start working on it and if you have good chemistry and you're getting there then stuff happens and songs eventually get written if not the same day they will get written uh over maybe one or two sessions you know Mm -hmm. um if you know if you got something good going and you just don't get it have enough time to finish it nine times out of 10, you would reschedule to try to finish that song. And if you get a really great song, you end up keep writing with that person. And you see, if you have a writing session and it's just kind of nothing happens and there's not a ton of chemistry, a lot of times you didn't write with that person anymore. Um, And they may have made that decision or you might've made that decision. Um, You know, there's times where, I mean, I, I'm pretty, you know, I like, I try to be humbly confident in like what I can do. And back then um, I was, relatively confident I thought I could write songs mm-hmm. um you know and sometimes you just get in a room and just I don't know you just didn't have it that day or you just weren't impressing that other person and you know that person didn't try to write with you again and you're like dang what did I do <laughs> you know but like, you just didn't have it that day but yeah. it's really but it's really good to do those it's really good to do those sessions where you're where nothing happens because you kind of learn from them I mean Oh yeah. You know, there's, there's, um, I think as musicians, we have to do, you know, we have to throw the, throw that dart, you know, a hundred times before one of them sticks, you know? Um, and the amount of, and I'm sure Ronnie and Allison, you know, this too, like just the amount of times where it has just, you got together to write or to jam or to do whatever. And within five minutes, you realize this is not going to be good. Mm-hmm. But you know, you kind of go through it anyway, and you go through the motions, and you, and you work it out. And at the end of it, you're like, "Yeah, we're not going to do this again." But you know, you you still probably found something that you could take away from it. Um, yeah. Well, and and I, you know, so I, I went through a bunch of those, and I met a lot of great people, and started writing with a lot of different people. And you build these different relationships, you start different projects. I mean, I, I ended up starting a different band in Nashville when I first moved here called the Mercy Mechanics. And I made an EP with that music. My buddy, uh, Chris Floyd, who um, I believe he's in Georgia. I forget where, what town, but he's, he lives y'all's way. And, um, you know, he's, he's, he was an incredible producer, guitar player. He, and he's more, He's a little bit, I think he's actually a generation above you, Allison, in age. Wow. Like he, so he's like, <laughs> well, cause like he was really, he was playing music in bands in his twenties in the early eighties. Okay. Does that, yeah. does that sound like, right? Yeah. About a decade. Yeah. About a yeah, decade yeah. Up. yeah. That's what I thought. So, um, 
so he he has a slightly different bent too like he has a he was i mean he loved like those those really great amazing bands from the 80s like and all those sounds and like and, and you know some of that stuff was pretty complicated musically like way more complicated than most of the stuff we're dealing with nowadays mm-hmm. so he would have these great stuff we'd write and we would just come up with such cool songs because he could take my ideas and he could give them the extra sophistication that i didn't have because i wasn't mm-hmm. quite that kind of a musician and guitar player and so that was a really good um partnership That's so that was cool. so what was i'm curious as to what like what was the ultimate goal with these songs and then who got to keep them if if like in the sense mm-hmm. of who who was allowed to perform them or were you guys trying to like get someone else to perform them what what so so the the early goal in nashville for me which is a common goal for most people is you you want to either be an artist or have a publishing deal and you're kind of getting out there and trying to find what lane is going to what doors are going to open for you um and so there was my natural tendency is to be an artist so right out of the gate when i came to town i was writing the music i wanted to write and trying to create songs and record stuff. But then, you know, any, you know, you're trying to also make money at doing this and you're trying to find a career. And so I early on kind of got shifted to try to kind of, there's a Nashville way of writing sort of that they teach you. And so I would go to these meetings at ASCAP and met with this guy, Ralph Murphy, who was a really wonderfully nice guy um, who gave a lot of his insight, which he believed in wholeheartedly. And I think has tremendous amount of value in the lane that you decide in that lane that it exists in. Mm -hmm. I believe music exists in many lanes outside of that lane, but he knew what he was talking about for that particular idea. And for talking about that Nashville way of writing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, sum that up just like in a sense. Well, I can sum up what Ralph used to tell me. Okay. Is always write to the woman. Every idea that you have, you write it so that the female is intrigued by it, likes it. It it, it, it sort of um, is something. This up with your early days in high school learning the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, right? Um, and then you know uh, you use a lot of furniture in the songwriting. So, and what they mean by that is like you use images, clear images, distinct images to get across your ideas. You don't use a lot of you know, one, another way to say is show the, show the world. And they, they use this in movies too. It's like, mm-hmm. if you're a really good filmmaker, it's like, don't tell them what you want them to know, show them what you want them to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, Nashville in particular, you know, it definitely mentions the idea of like putting furniture in the song. That sounds weird, but what it means is that you use lyrics that are descriptive instead of just saying what it is. Right. So you paint a picture. Uh, now the difference between, what you might call classic rock writing or like uh you know just sort of other art forms using using pictures is always better in a song almost always unless it's some kind of distinctive reason why you're not but nashville has a particular way it likes to use pictures and those are very um (laughs) home like they're just kind of homegrown and like um to the point a lot of times it's it's referencing um it can reference products and things that people that its audience is listening to enjoy, Mm. you know, it's a little bit more like down that road where it's like, that doesn't work. Uh, You don't hear certain types of artists use that kind of stuff very often. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then you could, you know, like classic rock and stuff, they were using like literature references. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. but Nashville, you, you know, that's why, you know, Nashville gets the, the rap of it's like, or it used to, it's like, it's just trucks and beers and, and stuff like right. that. Well, that's because there was a stretch of time where that's all the writers were putting in songs. They were just coming up with clever new ways to say it. Um, there's new the things. The formula but, works, right? It does to a point. Um, it certainly works to a point. Um, and that's what Ralph was saying. It's like, if you, if you write in this way, you're going to start writing the kind of songs that the publishers are going to, and his whole goal is because he's like, you want to get a publishing deal. Well, if you want to get a publishing deal, you need to write songs that publishers pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And th- that's the direction that those kind of ideas take. How you. are these songs getting in the hands of publishers up there? Like what, well, you what do you have to, to do? You, you can join organizations where you have opportunities to get into pitch meetings. Um, you know, you record some kind of demo of the songs, which costs money. Um, and what you what we learned pretty quickly, which was very annoying, is that like bad songs with good demos sometimes did better than good songs with bad demos. Oh, so, wow. so, you know, but but that just meant you had to have money to deal with it, right? Right. You know, and that was always a tricky part. So a lot of times I didn't have the money to, to demo all these songs because that would cost me at least back then at least three hundred bucks or so mm-hmm. um and so you would still pitch songs that were acoustic hoping that someone could hear it but unfortunately mm-hmm. not every publisher producer type who's listening to the song was going to be they, they wanted to hear what they could do with it mm-hmm. and sometimes if it's just an acoustic vocal they didn't always hear where it could go you know mm-hmm. and then other ones could other ones didn't care. They didn't care if it was. So this, that's not to say that every person in Nashville was like that. Like you just, it was kind of hit or miss. You just didn't know. I mean, it's, there's it's, still a it, lot of luck involved. I mean, yeah, you're in Nashville, oh, you're writing, you're, you're, you're meeting these people, you're in the pitch meetings, you're all this, but you have to play the right song for the right person at the right time. And it, I mean, it's, it, it's really can be, can be kind of random, you know, who, who likes it and who doesn't? Like you said, sometimes the worst song, but with a good demo, reaches them. Um, I think it's probably, you know, it's so much easier nowadays to 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 make a great recording just at home on oh, a zero dollar budget, which is fantastic. But that also means everyone can do that. Mm-hmm. So so now it's almost like everyone's got a good demo, you know, good or well, bad song. The other thing a lot of people don't think about either is that's one little piece to the bigger issue that exists in music is in the past, you know, it was, there was so, it was so much harder for the every average person to make music and get it into the hands of people that it needed to. So there was a lot of folks who might be talented, who could play guitar that never even tried. Well, because they didn't have a credit card with (laughs) $3,000 to record. I mean, but seriously, right. I mean, Y'all did or, that. Or the, I guess the balls are the stupidity to do that. Well, you um, you should listen to the last episode where I talk about where I recorded my first album in the back of a gas station. Yeah, <laughs> that was that was something but, else. But the, 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 the big point of what I'm saying is is so so it was not as saturated back then, and so there was right. less there, there was more opportunities if you were able to get a song recorded or get it into somebody's hands. They had they were listening to less music. So they might, it was a chance that they liked it. They could hear it better. Like they weren't overburdened by so much. 
And nowadays you take that coupled with the fact that everybody, I mean, the amount of people who are on social media who are trying to do music is so insane that like Mm -hmm. you really get lost. It's very difficult to get or very now, is that where lost. is that where these people are going? The publishers are going now. Are they going to social media? Oh yeah, they all they mostly only care about socials nowadays. Mm-hmm. I was in a meeting trying uh, trying to see if we had a company that was going to pitch the new record, mm-hmm. like for you know PR company, right? Mm-hmm. Good company in town, um, and they were good. They were they weren't they were good to us. I mean, they I think they really initially wanted to work the record but we were also because of something else that happened we were this all happened in august there was another long story short there was another company we're going to work with they they we lost track of them they kind of said they couldn't do it anymore late in the game for us then we were scrambling to meet some other companies we ended up getting one who really liked the record and so we were talking to them but they kind of realized it's too, too late in the game and um, and I think that they coupled it with knowing my numbers were lower than they would like to see them. And mm-hmm. so they, that coupled with not having enough, enough ramp up time, they kind of said, well, we can't do this. Um, but the thing that they said to me, which was crazy, is um, a particular publication, and I won't say it just in case it's an issue or whatever, but there's a publication that a lot of people try to get reviews from and stuff, mm-hmm. told them that they won't even listen to music unless they have a certain amount of followers on instagram i was gonna ask you which numbers you're talking about so the audience numbers yeah essentially yeah it's the audience numbers your followers uh-huh. your and stuff like that so this this organization doesn't matter how good the music is it doesn't matter that that music was being repped by this company which is a great company mm-hmm. they like who's who you know that company is repping major artists mm-hmm but they they still won't take that particular thing from that company if they don't have this number yeah, it adds and, just a whole different layer to which. Uh, yeah, and that didn't really even exist when we were younger. Right? No, that's that's why, for better or worse, you know, we talk a lot to our young students who are who are are, are thinking about songwriting. And I say, even now, at you know, you're a freshman in high school, like you've got to start building up your social media, your internet mm-hmm. presence, all that stuff now, because yeah, I mean, you just it's 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 the world you know it's the world we live in you gotta have those numbers they're vanity numbers but you gotta have them to Mm -hmm. to have anyone kind of pay attention to what you're to what you're doing yeah no it's a it's a it's a it's a real thing it's um it's not necessarily a good thing because it's not conducive for creating the kind of art that we grew up on at all yeah i mean Um, it's so much easier now to make music and to be uh, to you know, like when we were younger, we had to spend so much money or just not do it at all to make a really good product. And now it's so much easier to do. The problem is everyone can do it, so there is literally no barrier to entry. So, um, yeah, you are just you were you used to be up against just the best of the best. Now you're up against just everyone, everyone who yeah. has a laptop in front of them. You know. Yeah, and and. So ultimately, you know, that's the other lesson you teach your students. It's like, yeah, get your following. Great. That's probably lesson one if you're going to be really smart and tactical. But lesson two, just you have to just be yourself because um, and and you have to either yourself is this sounds terrible, but either yourself is good enough. And and I'm not saying necessarily good enough, like 
technically good enough. It's it 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 it's good enough to where it rises above the other noise. Mm-hmm. It could be something that most of your most of people in the country actually think sucks, but if it if it sounds in a way that catches people's ear, mm-hmm. and and you kind of all know what that's like. You 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 can tell like when you have just a band and they're like, oh yeah, they're fine, and then you see this one band. And they, they may not be the, mo- the best musicians in the world, but there's something about that sound, something about that vocalist, something about the, the song. And it makes you remember it. It makes you want to go check out more about it. Well, that's what it is, right? If it's that kind of good, that's all it needs to be. It doesn't have to be technically good. Right. Um, you would like it to be more technically good and that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you're talking about rising through the noise, um, right. breaking through that. And that's really where everything's at now. That and then there's also a lot more politics of just making music that's out there into the world. So like, you know, th- there's a lot of parody, like people want the same things. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go back to this is what I I'm, I'm not saying, obviously, I wasn't around them, but like from what I've read and seen and documentaries and stuff, if you go back to when they were trying to find the next artists in the 60s and 70s. They were looking for very fresh new things and they were looking for people that had that id factor right mm-hmm. nowadays the id factor really is more so yet yeah, are you able to generate an audience um which is not always because you have an id factor it could be because you know how to use the system mm-hmm. but it's also are you saying what everybody else wants with the with the the mainstream mind right now wants you to say can you sell it yeah yeah. Can you sell it? But we have been talking a lot in this series about how you can be a thriving, successful songwriter and musician without being mainstream, you know? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Definitely that. I know, you know, your goal, I think, is to have a song in the mainstream for sure. Yeah, um, well, my goal, my, my, my real goal is to make music that I make that I believe in that I I'm proud of and have integrity with mm-hmm. and and sort of see what doors that can open yeah. um I'm not going to stop performing out uh, well I'm about to stop performing out for a little while <laughs> to get ready for this kid but yes, um, <laughs> yes Ronnie but, is a, a daddy to be coming up later this year yeah congrats a couple months so <laughs> So we'll shut down the shop for a little while just mm-hmm. to get um, get her going. But um, but you know, I, you know, I think my honestly my favorite version of what it could look like is you have uh, a devoted audience that's I'm okay with whatever size it is if it allows you to keep making music, keep mm-hmm. playing shows, keep being a part of the music making world. But yeah, I love that. I, I love what you said about like the integrity too, but. You know, you want to stay true to it. Well, because I, I to... you know, we kind of bounced off of my with my story, but like that was so when I after I started meeting people and songwriting and doing all the co-writes, and I started meeting in ASCAP and learning about what Nashville was looking for, I really started to chase music row for a little while, and I mm-hmm. chased it like with this idea that I was going to do publishing only. Mm-hmm. But the problem was, is I was chasing what was already on the radio, which is a big problem. Um, and so if you want to tell your students about that, like if they really love a particular artist on the radio right now, do not just try to write songs like that artist because that's the past. Like it's, and the only way you, and you can't 
predict the future, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't want to write the past and you can't predict the future. So the only tool in your tool belt, the only tool in your tool belt is to be yourself mm -hmm. and be as original as you can. I love you, that. Yeah. That's and the only original. Yeah. That's something I learned. And that's when things started to change for me musically. Um, you know, I was writing all these songs, songs that sounded like Keith Urban songs, songs that sounded like Blake Shelton songs and all these things. And and I still think a lot of those songs are great songs. Right. But mm -hmm. um, people weren't reacting to them. And part of the reason they weren't reacting to them because they already heard that song by Keith Urban. <laughs> you know, like like, you know what I mean? Like there's an element to that. It's like, well, this isn't new enough for me or whatever. And I, I kind of got a little discouraged and I kind of had a moment where, you know, and, and you have these interactions, you know, you write with some people. I mean, I I've written with people back then that are now touring all over the place. Right. Mm -hmm. And I have songs that I have, I have a couple songs that I do in my show that I wrote with somebody who's really big right now. Mm -hmm. And I don't have a relationship with that person. Once they took off, they took off and, you know, and that happens too. Sometimes people, you that is those relationships build, and then it kind of pulls you into those circles. Sometimes they don't. But mm -hmm. what I learned was, is I started getting reactions. Um, I started getting reactions from my music when I just started to write songs about the things that I cared about, and I write and I would write them the way that I experienced music, like how. What, what was important about music and how it sounds to me. Well, I think that really speaks to how people seek out authenticity in art, art form, you know? Um, and yeah. I think, I think when we're learning, I think it's okay to copy to learn, mm -hmm. but then at some point you do have to, you know, become the creator and move away from that copy to creating the new. So I love everything you're saying. It like really resonates, I think, with what we're trying to teach our students. Wouldn't you say, Mark? I feel like yep, these are some absolutely. really good life lessons for young physicians. <laughs> but I'm one thing on as we're as we're kind of um, coming to the end of of our time, I, I really want to talk about the sync licensing because yeah, there's like a big buzz about that right now. Like that's kind of like where musicians sort of see a light at the end of the tunnel as a means to to really have some success. So can you tell us how you got into that? And then, you know, I know you mentioned you recently, fairly recently had uh, a song in Grey's Anatomy and you've done some yeah. other stuff. So we just love to know your experience and any advice you might have for folks who are interested in getting into that. Well, I, you know, I got into it because one of my dear friends, one of my first friends in Nashville, who she used to be an artist and made, and I used to write with her a lot. And I was like a rhythm guitar player. And when she would play live with a full band, she, um, she started having kids and she kind of moved out of being an artist and doing music, but she always wanted to be in the music industry. And so she found a way to shift eventually into starting a company called Resonate Music Licensing. Um, and what she got into, because her prior job when she was in California was she used to represent all the voiceover people in L.A., right? Well, somehow she used those connections to, to basically find a way to connect songs by artists that she liked to these 
corporations and businesses and studios for their commercials and movie trailers and stuff. And so she built this business that just took off. And so she was doing really well and she had a number of different artists who were doing really well, getting basically uh, licensed all the time. And she was like, Ronnie, I, you know, I, I, you know, we're friends. I love you. And I, and, and you're a great songwriter, but like, Ronnie, I can't, <laughs> I can't do anything with your country music because no one picks that up. They don't pick up country. Like they just don't get, wow. that's not completely true. Like, cause you'll hear some, but it's just like percentages wise, it's not a good business model for them. Wow. So like, they don't do it because you might get a couple of placements of a country song in a movie or a commercial, but very rarely compared to all the, and you know this when you watch commercials, it's a lot of this pop bombastic or the super melodramatic, like take an old Rolling Stone song and sing it super soft and extra slow with like the right. super breathy voice. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of that kind of stuff, right? Um, but she's like, if you will write more like a couple lanes and one of the lanes that she encouraged me to write down is the kind of indie folk pop range mm -hmm. which is like van joyce and vance joyce excuse me um and um a couple other bands i mean you've heard people in that, All that kind of singer songwriter but they have that kind of that's folky pop element. it's yeah. folky pop mm -hmm. kind of uh, element right and she's like you know and i was like absolutely i can write like that because i you know there's a part of me that believes i can write most things if you give me a shot at it right mm -hmm. i mean because i love music that much i i listen to just about anything so but i also knew that i'm not going to be able to function in that world unless i had a partner and what i mean by that is i'm a, i believed in my songwriting i believed in um a certain element of my production ideas but i don't know how to engineer songs i don't have a studio i'm not the musician that like some people are where they can play drum bass guitar, all these different instruments. So I need, I need, I need somebody who has more of those skills and then together we could work together to produce music. Mm -hmm. And that music may, we may be able to get that stuff because I, I have this relationship with um, Resonate that we may have some opportunities. And so I got together with my buddy, Sean Byrne um, and me and Sean basically created Sea Changer, which is a, a group that works with other featured artists and you know if we ever have the opportunity we would love to play shows with those artists and do things but like our main focus is to create singles that have sync capabilities so there is a different way to write for sync mm -hmm. um and that's another reason why country isn't used very much because country is too descriptive yeah. and sync doesn't want it to be too descriptive because you know colgate and warner brothers studios need to be able to use the song Right. right or the beer the beer company and the target need to be able to use the song mm -hmm. so if it says one thing or the other too much it, it it'll knock another company out of the contention mm -hmm. so there's a different way to, and it's a completely different way of writing <laughs> <laughs> but the key is that you're creating and in the process you know sean is in the, is one of the best producers i've ever met um he is an incredible person but a, an amazing producer and um so immediately we would just start writing songs with these artists and, and Resonate helped us hook up with a number of artists. And the big artist that we hooked up with first, which changed our world was Bird Talker. Bird Talker is uh, a band that's fronted by Zach and Danny, they're a married couple. Mm -hmm. And um, we wrote this really cool song called Hardest Home with them. 
and um, we released it as a single and Resonate picked it up and they started pitching it for sync. And the funny thing is that song didn't get picked up for sync, but it blew up and went viral on so- social, like uh, and Spotify and like streaming. Oh, cool. And so all of a sudden we, we were thrust into this world that I'd never been in. We're like, you know, that song has over almost half a million streams. Mm-hmm. And like wow. it had 10,000 streams the first 24 hours. Like I've never seen that before. Wow. It was a new thing for us. And so like, that was really cool to sort of see that grow like that. And then we worked with Molly Parton, who is another really cool female singer, has an amazing, unique voice. And we wrote, wrote with her this really cool song. And that song did really great on streams, but wasn't picked up. But then two years later, out of nowhere, <laughs> out of nowhere, it was two weeks after Molly was on Colbert. So I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but mm-hmm. um it got picked up by Grey's Anatomy. That and same then, song. That same song. Happen. Two years later. Wow. And these so, are just these are just tunes that you were a writer on, or were you actually playing on the track? Um, I mean, some of the tracks there's stuff that we've done where I played a little bit, but I mean, I think Sean played most on those two songs. So you're primarily <laughs> just in the writer field on that stuff. Well, we we have we have we we, we write and produce it together. Produce and, and producing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, Sean's, the doing, name Sean's your... doing the bulk of the production, though. Yes, so that's Sea Changer. But then yeah. I've seen another. Are you on a label, or I've seen? Is it Rain? So Feather? Rain Feather Records is a, a label in Nashville that mm-hmm. um, was interested in more of my artist stuff. Okay, cool. So that's so and then, you're and releasing he's... your own stuff. Yeah. Them. And so yeah. you've got uh, you just released a couple of singles. Yep. And a music video for one of them, which I watched. You have Did two you watch music videos? I, I watched It Ain't. I watched It Ain't. Yeah, that's the new one. The other one. Okay. That was really fun. So I have to ask, <laughs> were those your friends? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, so, so for anybody who wants to make a music video, if you got some friends and they're rowdy and fun and you, you have a barbecue in the backyard and you got the, <laughs> the camera equipment, and you have the time, you can make a fun video. <laughs> yeah, that was really fun. And the camera um, quality was so good. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we, we really we really lucked out. Uh, there's two people. Uh, Kaylin Hendricks was the main sort of director with me. We directed it together. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he did most of the shots. But um, a friend of mine, his name is Brandon Norwood, is, uh, is learning. He, the crazy thing is he's getting into videography. But he has the best equipment ever. Cool. <laughs> so like, well, that came this. in handy. <laughs> yeah. So he, he uh, and he's really talented, actually. But like, you know, he's cool. not he, he hasn't. I don't know if he's done a ton of like, I don't know how big his portfolio is yet. Yeah, that's, that's cool. Portfolio. He's the one who did the um, there's a shot in the video where we're singing in front of the all the people are dancing behind us. Yes. That's the shot that really has a very cinematic look to it. Yeah, it's great. I, I mean, the whole time I was like, wow, this video quality is really amazing. <laughs> um, so I'll definitely link um, your, you know, your new singles and your videos. But where you. do you like to connect with people the most? I know you're all over. I see you on Facebook. I see you on Instagram. You've got a website, Ronnie Chris, which is C-R-I-S-S dot com. I'll also put that in the show notes. But where do you like to to connect the most with your audience? Well, 
Honestly, like I'm good with either or, but the one that needs to, I'm honestly, um, I'm trying to use Instagram more and more because that apparently is the one that has more weight in terms of those numbers and, and trying okay. to engage an audience. Um, you know, I have a ton of uh, friendships, followers, whatever on Facebook, and you can get a lot of connections through Facebook, but Facebook is very different than it used to be. And then I'm not on TikTok. Um, I know that's the, the world wants to take you down that road and solidarity i'm with you <laughs> i'm just not uh it's I don't time know consuming anything. i've dabbled over there and uh i've been taking a break but yeah so everyone go find ronnie chris is it ronnie chris on instagram yes r-o-n-n-y-c-r-i-s-s if you do at and type that in i'm i will pop up immediately go follow ronnie chris on instagram I will be sharing in the show notes uh, links to his new singles, his new videos, his website. Ronnie, I feel like we could have a whole nother episode. I feel like there's so much more just around Nashville <laughs> music and the life of a musician. I feel like we just like barely got the tip well, of the if you, iceberg. If you, so. if you really want to do another episode at one point, we could focus on the making of the new record and what that process is like. Yeah, it, that it would be amazing. awesome. Okay. And I've worked with some incredible people. Um, we did we did half the songs at Blackbird Studio, which is a major studio in Nashville. It's owned by John McBride, who's okay. Martina McBride's wife, husband. And wow. uh, just amazing stuff. Like the board we recorded those songs on was the same board they recorded Asia, Steely Dan. I just listened to that on vinyl the other night. I actually have that record, you guys. So, my 12-year-old I mean, son picked it up. One of the so. preamps was in was in uh, Abby's um, Abby Rose Studios. The Beatles used it. Oh, like wow. crazy so little cool. tidbits like that, and you know we could talk about that. I mean, I got a wealth of stuff for that. Yeah, well, and and music's constantly changing, so I'm sure, like everywhere else, it's constantly changing up there in Nashville too. So. Yep. Um, but we would just really appreciate you coming and sharing your story with us and um, wish you all the best with your, your Thank movie you. on the way and with your music. And we'll definitely stay up to date with you and see what's going on with that. And awesome. Thank you. Here. Thank you Thanks both. So Mark, nice to meet you. Yeah, and for sure. Appreciate uh, you guys having me on. It's been a yeah, pleasure. Thank you. And thank you, listeners. Uh, Y'all are great. We appreciate you tuning in, and we will see you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.